Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians once again. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm going to uh, read into part of verse 15. So 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 15a. Uh, in chapter 8, you'll remember if you were with us last week, Paul was dealing with the issue of food offered to idols. And uh, while he worked through that issue, he taught a timeless principle for the Christian life. And the principle is that love limits liberty. Though we may know the truth, knowing the truth is not the only criteria of our behavior as followers of the Lord Jesus. There are times when uh, loving our fellow believers in Christ will limit liberty we know that we have for their sake, uh, for their good. We will willingly set aside our rights, our uh, liberties, because we love them more than we love that thing. That was last time. And now as you glance over chapter 9, you might get the impression that Paul has just moved on altogether from that subject. And in one sense, he has. He was dealing with the issue of food offered to idols in chapter 8, and he's setting that aside. He'll revisit it in chapter 10. But here in chapter 9, he defends his ministry as an apostle. But as he does so, what I want you to see today is that he does so in a way that models the principle we found in chapter 8, that love limits liberty. In other words, Paul practiced what he preached. He models how love, love for the Corinthians in this case, constrained his own liberty. He has given up rights. He knows he uh, is free to exercise for their good and for their welfare. Now let me just give you an outline up front before we pray and read so you can track with me this morning as we work our way through this passage. Uh, First of all, in verses 1 through 3, there is the defense that uh, Paul offers. He's required to defend his ministry, so there's a defense here. And then secondly, there's the duty that he explains. There is a normal obligation resting upon churches that he wants the Corinthians to recognize Uh, also applies to them. Uh, So the defense he offers, the duty he explains, and then thirdly, the decision he makes, the extraordinary decision he makes. Paul takes a particular stance with respect to the Corinthians that I think is surprising, challenging, and instructive for us all. There is a, a decision he makes in his own case for their good, uh, from which I think we can learn a great deal. So the defense he offers, the duty he explains, and the decision he makes. That's what we're going to think about this morning. Before we read God's word, let's pause and pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now for uh, that ministry of the Holy Spirit who illuminates uh, the word and shows us Christ in his glory and his infinite worth. Uh, we, we pray that he would indeed work in all of our lives, in all of our hearts, and shine the light of truth into our hearts and bring, uh, bring the sin that is hiding there in the darkness out into the light and let it shrivel up there and die. 
And we pray that in that light you would bring forth gospel fruit and cause gospel graces to grow that would bring glory to you and be good for the fellowship of believers here. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 1, let's give our attention to God's word. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the uh, the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses... You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, Do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. We'll conclude our reading there. Well, it's it's well recognized today that we find ourselves living in what has been called a culture of entitlement. Uh, An article in the New York Times that uh, I read cited a story of a a young man who uh, went to his boss at work and and told him that he needed some time off uh, in order to to grieve, to to attend a funeral for a friend that he lost. And his boss said, take all the time you need um, and uh, let me know when you'll be back. Well, uh, instead of going to a funeral... And grieving this young man actually intended to travel out of state to uh, hang out with his brother uh, at a lake in Wisconsin. And uh, this young man also wrote a blog. And uh, it just so happened that his employer followed this blog. And uh, when he arrived, he, he said, the, the very first thing he said in the blog, I said I was leaving town for a funeral. I lied. 
Now, when the boss read that, he wasn't so much taken aback by the fact that he had been lied to by one of his employees in order to get some time off. That's something he was accustomed to. He was taken aback because the man thought nothing of proudly declaring before the world his total disregard for his responsibilities and his duties at work. And this is just one example of what today is known as workplace entitlement. And businesses are actually now seeking resources in order to squash workplace entitlement because it's such an issue today. Uh, this, this same article which cites this, that particular incident goes on to describe millennials as entitled, lazy, narcissistic, and addicted to social media. Now, I'm not trying to pick on any of the millennials here. If so, I'm, I'd have to point at myself because I'm one of them. But that's what the article says, and I think it's a fitting description in many ways. Narcissistic, entitled, lazy, and addicted to social media. Entitlement, it's a, it's a real problem, isn't it, in our culture? Uh, and it's a problem not just for millennials, but for all of us, if we're honest. We tend, don't we, to have 2020 vision when it comes to our rights. We see very clearly when it comes to issues of our own personal liberties. But we can be a little bit fuzzy when it comes to our responsibilities. Our duties, demanded by love. Isn't, isn't that the truth? Personal rights, we, we, we're scholars. We know them full well. Responsibilities, perhaps no, not so much. And I think that's all related to the culture of entitlement that we find ourselves living in. And it appears some of the Corinthian Christians had a similar entitlement mindset. We saw in the last chapter that Some of them were flaunting their freedom and their right to eat meat sacrificed to others with no concern of what it was doing to their brothers and sisters for whom Jesus Christ died. And now they are raising in this chapter objections, questioning Paul's authority as an apostle, doubting his word, dismissing his ministry altogether. So if you look at verses 1 through 3, you'll see the first thing that we need to think about, the defense that Paul offers to that criticism. If you take a look at it, just starting in verse 1, he says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense of those who would examine me. Now, those words that Paul uses, defense and examine, those are, those are common law court terms in Paul's day. Paul is defending himself here against what he considers to be a hostile, biased, and prejudiced prosecution. And he offers, he offers a number of points in his defense that we're going to consider. But, but first, I think it might be worth pausing and asking why the Corinthians are so frustrated with the Apostle Paul in the first place. Why are they questioning his role as an apostle? Why are some seeking to undermine him? Well, if you read the rest of the chapter, I think it will become clear why, in part, they are so upset. And it might sound kind of strange to us at first, but what has got them so upset is that Paul refused to take their money. Paul refused to take their money. Now you see, in ancient cities like Corinth, 
traveling orators and public speakers depended on the support of of wealthy patrons. People who who liked listening to their their public speeches, who liked listening to them talk. It was a form of of entertainment, really. They They would lodge in their homes and receive financial compensation for they're speaking. And of course, in, in those days, uh, just as in our own, much of the time, money comes with strings attached, doesn't it? And so if you were one of these traveling orators funded by a wealthy patron, the patron had, in the mindset of the Corinthians, every right to expect some, some praise from you, uh, some support from you as the public orator who would support that patron's personal agenda and reputation. See, the orator could easily become a puppet uh, with the patron being the one pulling the strings. But the Apostle Paul refused to play that game. We learn that in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 4, that he was was a tent maker. That was his skill. He, He knew how to make tents, and he used it to free him from financial dependence in churches among many churches that he ministered to. And that really, that really got under the skin of some of the Corinthians. It really irked them. And so they, uh, there, were, there, were, there were no strings for them to hold on to, to get the Apostle Paul to, to dance and do what they wanted him to do. No way to control him and his ministry and his communication. And so they resorted to a tactic that I, I think is not all that uncommon when the entitled do not get their way. They resort to undermining Paul. They seek to damage his credibility as an apostle. They resort to denunciation. And so Paul offers two arguments here in defense in verses 1 through 3. First he says, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Uh, Remember that that's one of the necessary qualifications for apostleship. You had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection. Uh, I remember... This was several years ago now, uh, traveling down to Maryland to the Western Correctional Institution for the the Reformation Conference that several PCA pastors in our presbytery will often go to to help out. Uh, Dave and I have gone together. This was a year I would think was with Pastor Aaron Garber from Calvin. Anyway, we're going in to, to, to minister to these inmates and we're being led in by the guard, and we're also being ushered in with a couple of other groups, and we're, you know, we're standing in a corridor waiting for one door to close so the next can open, and as we're making our way through the hallways, uh, I find out that one of the men in the group actually claims to be a living, breathing apostle. <laughs> and I didn't have any time to react to that. All I know is I heard a lot of ruckus behind me for the next hour through the wall. Um, but anyway... I hope we understand that the office of the apostle has ceased. Apostles, as agents of revelation, are no longer given to the church by the risen Christ because the apostolic foundation has been laid. Um, so in Acts chapter 9, though, the apostle Paul, this is what he's reminding the Corinthians of, He saw the Lord risen from the dead and he received the commission directly from the risen Christ on the Damascus road. 
And so he says, in essence, I have the qualifications of apostleship. And then notice the second argument that he makes in his defense. He, he points to the Corinthians themselves as his argument, as the seal of, of his apostleship in the Lord. So what, what's Paul arguing here? Well, he's saying, what's the evidence of my apostleship, dear Corinthians? You are. What's the evidence of my apostleship? Changed lives. He's saying, you guys have heard my gospel, the gospel that I received. And you are the evidence of supernatural realities. You have turned from idols to serve the living and true God. You're the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. You know, just one thing I, I would throw in here. It's, it's common among some Reformed ministers to, to say that, you know, God isn't really interested in our fruitfulness so much as he is in our faithfulness. Fruitfulness is God's business. We, we can't make the fruit appear in the lives of others because that's, that's God's work. We are just called to be faithful to the calling that God has given to us. And that's true. That's true. Our responsibility is faithfulness and fruitfulness is the work of the Lord. But Paul is reminding us here very helpfully that ordinarily Christian faithfulness is connected to fruitfulness. Faithful ministry bears fruit in our lives and in the lives of those whom the Lord calls us to serve. That is what Paul is suggesting here. His faithfulness in the service of the Lord is demonstrated in the fruitfulness of the lives of the Corinthians. And so Paul defends his ministry along those two lines. So the defense he offers, and then secondly, what I want us to consider is the duty that he goes on to explain. Now, he has been unwilling to receive compensation from the Corinthians, much to their frustration. That doesn't mean, however, that it's wrong to pay your pastor, for which I'm personally very grateful. <laughs> uh, he wants them to know that, and a large part of the argument of the rest of chapter 9 is reminding the Corinthians that they have this duty, they have this holy obligation to support gospel work gospel ministry in their midst financially. Now notice how he argues in verse 4. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? You see, Paul is, Paul is saying that the other leaders of the early church, the apostles, Jesus' brother, even the apostle Peter, they were freed from worldly concerns, from secular employment. So they could eat and drink and live and even bring along their wives on ministry trips because the church was supporting them adequately. So why not Paul? Why not Paul and Barnabas? That's, that's Paul's question here. And then he offers a string of arguments to, to back up and to reinforce the point that he is making that supporting and maintaining the work of the ministry of the gospel is the duty of every local church. So let's just run through each of these arguments and consider them quickly. The first is we might call it a justice argument. Take a look at verse 7. So soldier works for wages 
Vintners get to eat some of their own grapes. Dairy farmers drink uh, some of the milk from their own herd. That's, when you consider what he's saying there, you, you're led to think that's, that's right, that's just, that's the way things ought to be. Perhaps some of the Corinthians themselves were, were soldiers or, or vineyard workers or farmers. If, that, if so, that surely would have strengthened Paul's argument. They all benefit from their labors, so why should Paul, who labored among them, be any different? And then there's a second argument. One will, there's a justice argument, and then secondly, we can call it a biblical argument in verse 9. Where Paul says, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Now oxen, therefore, by according to the law of Moses, were not to be muzzled. They were, they were to be allowed to munch on the grain as they tread round and round to separate the, the, weaf, the wheat from the chaff. And I, I don't know about you, but when I, when I stop and I reflect upon what Paul is doing here in quoting a case law like this, it's, it's really fascinating, isn't it, to think about the implications of this for our interpretation of Scripture. But that's a rabbit trail we can't go down today. I'd love to. But for Paul, think about it. A law about oxen not being muzzled while working has much broader implications and application. He goes on to ask, now, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow and hope, and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. You see, God, who is indeed concerned about oxen, his, his concern reaches that level. But God, who is indeed concerned about oxen, is even more concerned about his ministers. Like oxen who serve their masters, ministers who are called to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, are to be tended to. And the church, Paul is simply arguing, ought to ensure that they are provided for. And so a justice argument, a biblical argument, and then thirdly, a, a logical argument in verse 11. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? You see, he's using logic to argue from the lesser to the greater here. If we sow spiritual things in your lives, which are of more lasting and enduring value, eternal value even, surely then material provision of our daily needs isn't too much to ask from you. Okay, so a justice argument, a biblical argument, a logical argument, and then we might call the fourth a religious practice argument in verses 13 and 14. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Okay, so the duty, the right that the Apostle Paul has is not unclear. It's crystal clear. Christians should give to their local churches to support the work of the gospel, gospel ministry among them. The Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. That's how Paul puts it. Now, let me just say a couple of things in light of Paul's argument here. 
Maybe three things, actually. First, just so we're clear, if you're visiting today, I am not preaching this passage out of the blue. I'm not preaching it to make a point. I'm preaching this passage because it's the next text in our series in 1 Corinthians as we make our way through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Okay, so no agenda here. No agenda here. And secondly, as your pastor, I would be the first person to say, Trinity, that you do this really, really well. I am so grateful that these are not arguments that even need to be made because you are all so so generous and you faithfully support the work of the ministry. And so I want you to know, I don't, I don't think I say it enough, I want you to know how thankful I am for that. But also, and this is, this is the third thing I want to add, I, I hope that this passage will inform your giving. Don't ever lose sight of the purpose of giving in the church of Jesus Christ. This is reminding us that you're giving to gospel ministry and to gospel ministers and to gospel missions. Please don't ever fall into the trap of thinking, I'm just throwing some money in the offering plate to support the organization and to prop it up for a little while longer. Giving is about maintaining people in ministry and about funding ministries so that people are grounded in and growing in Christ so that people are introduced to the Lord Jesus and are discipled in him. And so when you give, when you give faithfully at Trinity, you're, you know, you're giving to things like your, your pastors. Uh, you're, you're giving to, to fund the ministries of the church. You're giving to fund things like our Sunday school ministry that seeks to disciple our children and nurture them in the Lord. You're, you're giving to works of mercy as the deacons seek to care for those in need. You're giving to support counseling and instruction to members and people outside of the church in need of help. And you're, you're giving as well to maintain this place that the Lord has given to us to worship and fellowship and serve one another. And so don't lose sight of that. Giving is a duty because it, it, it supports this important work, the work of gospel ministry. And so Paul defends himself, and then he presses upon the Corinthians this duty. And then, as I said, he does something extraordinary with the decision that he makes. In the face of the entitled Corinthians, do you, do you see how Paul refused to exercise his right of receiving their financial support, which ordinarily ought to be a normal part of congregational life. That's the last thing that I want us to think about this morning, this this decision that Paul made for himself as minister to the Corinthians. He has every right to receive their support. They have a duty to support him. He even presses it upon the Corinthians, I think, to ensure that others in ministry among them are supported properly. But for himself, he makes this extraordinary decision. He refuses to exercise his rights in this area. You see it there in verse 12? If others share in this right claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. Or if you go to verse 15, the first part of verse 15, which we read, 
I have not made use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. And so, dear friends, remember, remember the principle from the last chapter. Love constrains liberty. That's how Christians are called to live. Just because you have a right to do something doesn't mean it's always the loving thing to do it. And now we see here, don't we, that Paul is setting an example. He's practicing what he preached. He doesn't call the Corinthians to live by a principle that he is unwilling to implement and apply to himself uh, given necessary circumstances. He restricts his own freedom here. He willingly sets aside his right as an apostle. Love constrains liberty in Paul's life. And so he relinquishes his right for their sake. And, as, and so I think one of the questions that this created in my mind as I was reflecting upon this during the week, and one of the questions I want us to ask together is, where does that kind of thing come from? Right? Why would somebody want to do this? To deny one of their rights or their privileges for the sake of something or someone else. In an entitlement culture, when everyone is demanding their rights, you give yours up. You surrender your rights for the sake of others. How? Well, we're going to have to wait for the weeks ahead as we work our way through this chapter for the, for the full answer. But if you look again at verse 12, you'll see at least part of the answer. Verse 12, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And so you see, Paul was ready to endure anything to not put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. That was his primary governing concern. Not his rights, not his privileges, or not his, not his liberties. The gospel of Jesus Christ was his driving, governing concern. And I want to say to us this morning, let, let this be our burden too. That the gospel would not be hindered. Paul wanted the gospel to come to them free of charge. Because it is, after all, it is a gospel about a salvation that is free. That is provided for us for free at the great expense of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who willingly set aside his rights, denying himself for our sake. For our salvation, indeed for our eternal good. See, he paid with his lifeblood for our redemption. And my friend, it is offered to all and any that would take it for free. You need only believe and receive Christ given for sinners at the cross. And my friends, here's the measure of just how far that good news has penetrated into our hearts and gotten into our bones. Those who really grasp the wonder and grace of the gospel will do anything, anything to get out of the way of the gospel, to let it come with full force and power for the good of others. They will gladly lay down their rights so that the gospel may go forth unfettered. 
And so Paul, he was, he was a man so captivated by the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of, of sinners like me and like you. And he came to understand that this was a message worth laying down his life for because the Jesus at the center of this message is our very great reward. And so there is no sacrifice that he can make or that you and I can make that is too great to express our delight at having been found by this Christ and having been called by him to present him to others in order that they may be found in him also. And so my prayer as we think about this text, my prayer for us is that, that God would so arrest our attention and so get hold of our hearts by the freeness of the gospel, by the wonder and the glory of what Jesus Christ has already done for us, that we find ourselves gladly, willingly, even joyfully surrendering our rights so that the gospel might come through us to others, to the glory and the praise of Almighty God. Would you please join me in prayer? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do praise you for the gospel, for the good news of guilty sinners, enslaved sinners being pardoned and accepted and set free in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that on the cross he bore the wrath and the curse and that in him we died to sin and in him we were raised to newness of life. We thank you for the glorious liberty that we enjoy as uh, your children and your people. And we pray that these gospel realities would ignite our hearts with wonder and love and gratitude. And that as we follow after our Savior Jesus Christ, that we would be willing even and uh, joyful in doing, laying down our rights in order to serve our brothers and sisters and in order that the gospel of our Savior might go forth. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.